Good morning, good, uh, good, good evening uh, to all our uh, participants from around the world. The uh, uh, influx of participants has slowed, so I think we will, we will get started. Uh, welcome uh, all to this uh, um, uh, edition of the Critical Issues Confronting China series. Uh, hosted by the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. My name is Michael Sony, and I have the honor of serving as the director of the Fairbanks Center. Um, and it's my great pleasure to host you today, albeit uh, uh, online. The Critical Issues Confronting China series was, as, as, as many of you probably know, established by uh, uh, our uh, dear colleague and friend Ezra Vogel uh, about eight years ago. Uh, with the support of Bill Overholt, uh, who you see on the screen as well, and Bill Xiao, two other colleagues at Harvard. Uh, and Ezra's goal was to bring informed analysis by scholars, policymakers, and other practitioners to bear on key issues confronting contemporary China to a broader audience, both here at Harvard and beyond. Uh, Ezra, of course, uh, sadly passed away last year, but we have decided to continue the series both in his honor, but also because it is so important that uh, uh, people be aware of the challenges facing China, of China's uh, uh, policies and other efforts to deal with those challenges and the implications for the world we live in. Uh, before introducing our speaker today, let me just make a couple of uh, technical uh, comments. Um, first of all, uh, uh, one of the, uh, much as I wish that we could all be gathered in person and, and, and catch up, uh, of course, that is impossible. On the, on the positive side, that allows us to draw on speakers from different parts of the world, which was not possible when we were meeting in person uh, in Cambridge. Uh, we do occasionally have to adjust uh, from our normal time of 12.30 uh, a.m., uh, 12.30 p.m., uh, East Coast time uh, in order to accommodate our speakers. And so that's what we've done, of course, this time. Um, we have a couple of other speakers situated in the Asia Pacific region coming up, and we will host all of those speakers either at 9 or 9.30 in the morning Cambridge time. Uh, but that will be the exception. As far as possible, we will stick with our normal time, uh, and we will return to that normal time uh, uh, Wednesday next week uh, when we will hear from Bill Bacallus on poverty uh, alleviation efforts and the Common Prosperity uh, uh, campaign. Uh, so please register for that, join us for that. Uh, today's talk will be, uh, uh, is of course live, but also will be recorded and available in future on the Fairbank website. Um, the format is fairly straightforward. Uh, our speaker, uh, Professor Kelly Tsai, will speak for about 45 minutes, I believe. Uh, and uh, uh, then we'll open it up for questions using the Q&A function. So we'll have moderated uh, questions. The instructions have just gone up in the chat. Uh, as the instructions will indicate, you are welcome to submit your questions anonymously uh, or to identify yourself as you will. Uh, we will try to get through all of the questions. Apologies in advance uh, if, if we don't. If you have an urgent, I should have cleared this with our speaker ahead of time. But if you have an urgent question that we don't get a chance to respond to, I'm guessing Professor Tsai will respond to an email if need be. Uh, I think that's all the, 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 the technical uh, questions. So let's get right to the presentation. Um, Professor Kelly Tsai is Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Science 
and chair professor of social sciences at Hong Kong University at the Hong sorry at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Um, uh, she, of, of course, uh, is working in higher education administration in Hong Kong at a very challenging time, uh, but that is not the uh, focus of her remarks today, though we're cert we'd certainly be interested in hearing about, hearing about that. Before joining, before joining HKUST, she was Vice Dean for Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. Her current research concerns the political economy of remittances and ethnic foreign direct investment in China, India. But she's going to talk today about another project uh, which recently produced the edited volume Evolutionary Governance in China, State Society Relations Under Authoritarianism with Si Jian Xu and Jun Zhichang. So without further ado, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to hearing about evolutionary governance under authoritarianism. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me to speak in this Critical Issues Lecture Series, and to everyone out there for meeting earlier in the day to accommodate my time zone. I have the fondest memories of attending Fairbanks Center seminars when I was a graduate student with luminaries sitting around the table, including Ezra, of course, Merle Goldman, Ben Schwartz, Lucian Pye, Joe Fusemith, Liz Perry. Um, it's, it's such an honor to be back virtually, at least. Today, I'm going to talk about an edited volume that was recently published by the Harvard Asia Center on Evolutionary Governance in China, which focuses on state society interactions. And then for the second half of the talk, I'd like to tie it to some of my current research with a graduate student here at HKUST, uh, Huang Jinyang, on surveillance and digital governance with more of a focus on intrastate relations. Uh, Xu Jian uh, and uh, Chun Chun and I started this project back in 2015. It's perhaps embarrassing how many years it took to bring this project to fruition, but in retrospect, that turned out to be quite helpful because we now have a better sense of the arc of governance and dynamics under Xi Jinping and the overarching premise of the framework in the volume is that we can't understand the nature of state society relations through a single snapshot or a single case study. There's ongoing interaction between state and societal actors, even in an authoritarian context. Yet much of the literature on state society relations in China is based on case studies of particular groups in society or dynamics in specific localities. And what appears to be a definitive outcome come at one point in time. So this project was motivated by an ambitious effort to understand the nature of state society relations in different issue areas. And the analytical lens is self-consciously dynamic and co-evolutionary. Rather than focusing on either state or societal strategies, our framework highlights the interaction between them and how state and societal actors respond to one another's strategies over time and, and quite a stretch of time. And we believe this stance provides more insight into the mechanisms of authoritarian governance than explanations that are dominant in the study of comparative authoritarianism in political science. Elite-centric approaches to explaining authoritarian durability have tended to emphasize power sharing arrangements and formal institutions such as elections, legislatures, and this makes sense in political systems that allow for some degree of political competition, 
but that's not the case in non-competitive authoritarian regimes like China. About 15 to 20 years ago, there was an earlier debate about whether the pluralization of Chinese society, rapid economic growth, and the emergence of a middle class would provide the basis for a transition to democracy. No one has been seriously debating the prospects for democracy in China for about a decade or so. In case instead, there's been an overwhelming shift towards trying to understand the nature of authoritarianism in China spawning a cottage industry of what I would call an authoritarianism with adjectives literature. When I was in graduate school in the late 1990s, uh, Lieberthal and Oxenberg's fragmented authoritarianism was the main qualifier that we had in the field that distinguished the nature of authoritarianism in China from authoritarianism in other parts of the world. Fragmented authoritarianism describes the tension between vertical bureaucracies and horizontal levels of government, and then the resulting gaps in China's policymaking process. Harry Harding also coined the term consultative authoritarianism to describe how the revitalization of certain input channels represented what he called, quote, a significant departure from the totalitarianism of the recent past. And what Harry meant was that the post-Mao leadership recognized the need to obtain information, advice, and support from key sectors of the population. It was during the Hu Jintao era that the authoritarian with adjectives literature really took off. And social scientists gunning for tenure coined an additional 11 terms to modify the nature of authoritarianism in contemporary China. It's been described as resilient, plutocratic, decentralized, responsive, adaptive, deliberative, networked, and so forth. This authoritarianism with adjectives trend in Chinese politics and sociology continued in the Xi Jinping era, but most of the research took place before that because it actually takes, you know, as many people in this audience know, it takes so many years to publish peer-reviewed books and articles in our field that by the time it came, these publications came out in the Xi Jinping era, uh, much of the research had already been conducted uh, several years prior. At least 20 different terms have now been coined to describe China's regime and different dimensions of state society relations. The Introduction to our volume goes into a lot more detail about the authoritarianism with adjectives literature, but in brief, uh, they generally revolve around three modalities of governance. First, uh, information flows between state and society. This refers to how the state communicates and collects information from society, and then the opportunities that society has for providing input to the regime. For example, the concept of deliberative authoritarianism derives from the observation that various top-down institutional innovations have increased the scope for political participation and political deliberation during the reform era. And these innovations include things like village elections, public hearings, deliberative polls, administrative litigation, meaning the right of citizens to sue the state, and greater use of people's congresses to discuss policy. Within the category of information flows, there have also been several studies that highlight the role of the media in understanding and shaping public opinion. Anne-Marie Brady uses the term popular authoritarianism to refer to a one-party regime that is highly attentive to public opinion and relies on mass persuasion, meaning propaganda, to maintain its legitimacy. 
Others use the term network authoritarianism to describe the coexistence of online activism with party state censorship and the manipulation of digital content. In other words, the regime tolerates a certain degree of private expression, but it also possesses the institutional capacity to control information as needed. Second, the second strand of literature um, in, uh, tends to focus on mechanisms for holding local officials accountable. So these studies concern the paradoxical vibrancy of offline contentious politics in an otherwise repressive authoritarian context. The terms contentious authoritarianism and decentralized authoritarianism refer to the utility of petitions and protests for central leaders to assess the performance of local officials since social stability, uh, so stability maintenance wavelength is part of the cadre evaluation system. And then the third set of studies tend to focus on regime responses to the information received. And Liz Perry's notion of revolutionary authoritarianism points to the longstanding tradition of protest in PRC history. And she's observed that demonstrations are less politically destabilizing in China precisely because protest is routine and officially circumscribed, as she puts it. In what Wenfang Tang calls populist authoritarianism, yes, there are a lot of things to be unhappy about and take to the streets about, but public opinion surveys show that there's actually a fairly high level of regime support. The notions of adaptive authoritarianism, responsive authoritarianism, and pragmatic authoritarianism all point to a flexible and practical approach towards governance. Taken together, all of these authoritarianism with adjectives contributions recognize that the Chinese Communist Party prioritizes regime survival above all else, and that allowing for consultation and participation within limits and demonstrating re responsiveness and adaptability all serve a legitimizing function and contribute to authoritarian resilience. My co-authors and I agree with these general observations in the existing authoritarianism with adjectives literature. Rather than introducing yet another adjective to modify authoritarianism, in the volume at least, um, our volume tries to pull it all together in a broader framework. Sometimes state-society relations are highly charged, contentious, conflictual. Other times, one side may be more assertive, while the other one is more accommodating. And there are instances when state and society actually partner with one another in a collaborative form of co-governance. For heuristic purposes, our volume is organized around a two-by-two -two framework that recognizes that sometimes the state adapts a hard strategy of engagement and sometimes it adapts a softer one that's actually more conciliatory and flexible. The same could be said of societal actors. But what are the circumstances under which the party state exerts its course of capacity versus engaging in more flexible responses or policy adaptations? This is the context for our framework of evolutionary governance under authoritarianism. Conceptually, the essence of authoritarianism is the exertion of political authority or what Michael Mann referred to as despotic power, including the suppression of dissent and political competition. Throughout the volume, we operationalize political power through four indicators, as you can see on the slide. These are all arenas in which the regime may exert its authority at the expense of societal actors. We also view political power as a zero sum concept under authoritarianism. But governance is different. 
Unlike political power, governance entails a non-zero-sum relationship between state and society. Governance in involves sharing information and cooperation between public and private stakeholders. Engagement by both sides is not only mutually beneficial, but necessary for e effective management of public affairs. As uh, Yongnian Zheng puts it, strong state, strong society mode of governance is a win-win situation. Operationally, we assess governance along four dimensions. Regime resilience is arguably augmented when these attributes are observed in the analysis of specific issues or incidents. So in our framework, authoritarianism refers to the degree of government, to borrow Sam Huntington, 1968, while governance refers to how the regime actually governs. The, the volume also attends to the policy outcome of state society interactions as of 2020. Following repeated state society engagement, does the relevant state policy change in a direction that responds fav favorably to societal demands? Or does the policy context in which the initial issue emerged remain in place? To operationalize this framework more broadly, in chapter two, Xu Jian and Shunzhi present findings from a quantitative case survey project that compiled 125 cases of state society interactions that were published between 2005 and 2015 in the three leading English language social science journals on China. So China Quarterly, China Journal, and Journal of Contemporary China. They find that the state wields considerable political power when it chooses a strong strategy of engagement with societal actors, but societal actors are able to have impact on both governance and policy outcomes when they pursue strong strategies while the state adopts softer ones and when both sides pursue soft strategies, there's also a greater likelihood for policy reform. This finding exposes a structural tension in the regime's pursuit of authoritarian resilience. On the one hand, repressive strategies enable the state to maintain political power, that's authoritarianism. On the other hand, the quality of governance or resilience is enhanced when the state adopts softer modes of engagement with society. This dilemma lies at the core of evolutionary governance under authoritarianism. The 11 chapters, empirical chapters in the volume use the same framework to trace a particular case of state society interaction by identifying different phases of interaction over time and then tracing how state and societal strategies also responded to one another in a co-evolutionary manner. All of the chapters are based on in-depth field research in China. And to top it off, we're honored that Liz Perry agreed to write a timely epilogue that engages our insights on evolutionary governance with her signature thoughts on China's enduring revolutionary tradition. So what did we find? Overall, political outcomes vary considerably across issue domains. Uh, disputes over local community affairs are most likely to have an effect on political power and governance. In most of the studies on Beijing homeowners, state and societal actors eventually pursued soft strategies of engagement, which improved key aspects of governance. But it's important to point out that societal actors are these, the ones that were effective were urban middle-class citizens who have the legal knowledge, the material resources, and the social networks to engage constructively with relevant state entities. They are privileged members of society. 
unlike property owners, industrial workers are less empowered. And there was a rise of workers protests during the 1990s and 2000s. In response, the central government enacted the 2008 labor contract law. But this law, which was meant to protect workers, had the unintended consequence of fueling an upsurge of strikes and labor disputes. Rather than promoting stability, introducing institutional channels for mediating labor con conflicts has arguably contributed to regime fragility. In the other two chapters on state responses to labor issues, we see that the state used labor abuses by private and foreign capital as an opportunity to relocate pollution producing industry from the coastal south to inland provinces. This totally backfired with the unintended effect of leading Taiwanese investors to then move there, just relocate their production to Southeast Asia. In rural and urbanizing areas, land disputes have been a major source of social instability since the early 2000s. In Guangdong's uh, Sunshan village, the local government's land grab triggered a rights defense or Weichun movement that went through protracted phases of repression, uh, alliance with non-local rights activists, contention through institutional channels, electoral accommodation for a moment, and then defeat when leading rights activists were arrested. When it comes to more private forms of social issues, such as domestic violence, it's women's groups that have taken the lead in policy advocacy. The eventual passage of the domestic violence law in 2015 was the outcome of an evolutionary process that started all the way back in the late 80s um, and then had some agenda setting influence from around 1988 until 2000 and then political mobilization followed by governmental responsiveness and then actual policy change. In religious affairs, it's clear that the state retains control over deciding what constitutes desirable versus undesirable religions. Um, Christianity, for example, falls into the undesirable category, and there's been a crackdown on unregistered churches since 2013. By contrast, over the course of three decades, a combination of local activism, creativity, and resourcefulness enabled residents of Meizhou and Fujian to reframe Matsu belief from being a superstitious local folk religion to a UNESCO-certified intangible cultural heritage. One of the advantages of the evolutionary and diachronic stance of this volume is that it enables us to see how improvements in authoritarian governance are nonlinear, hard won, and also reversible. In HIV AIDS governance, state society interaction has gone from being conflictual with both state and society pursuing hard strategies to the state accepting international aid and a flourishing of grassroots NGOs. But since the state cracked down on autonomous domestic NGOs under Xi's rule, we've seen the retreat of international donor support. What does all of this mean during the ongoing reign of Xi? It's obvious that the state has shifted towards harder strategies and engagement with societal actors, but there's still pockets of space for interaction when the interests of societal actors are framed in a manner that aligns with state discourse and interests. Um, areas of mutual alliance would be poverty alleviation. That's a state, that's a state priority. Societal actors are concerned about that as well. Another area would be public health, where again, state and society are, are both concerned about public health. The party state is still collecting information from society to ensure its own survival and be responsive within key political limits. The 100 year old communist party still needs to govern 
and be perceived as legitimate. So even though I think as a field, we may have gone overboard with the authoritarianism with adjectives literature, um, but nonetheless, additional terms have emerged in the context of China's increasing reliance on technology for governance. First, there's digital authoritarianism, which has been a popular think, uh, a popular term among think tanks like Freedom House, Brookings, CSIS. Even though the Great Firewall has been in place for a long time, the latest cybersecurity law introduced in 2018 centralized all internet policy within the Cyberspace Administration of China, which reports to the Central Cyberspace Affairs Commission headed by Xi Jinping. The cybersecurity law is vast and it continues to grow. It requires all network operators and social media companies to register users under their real names. The law bans content deemed to be harmful to national security a content that spreads rumors or disturbs the public order. Last year, the Cyberspace, Cyberspace Administration launched a campaign to clean up illegal political and religious content and has already removed over 100 apps. And in April of this year, the Cyberspace Administration launched a hotline to report online comments that criticize the party. But, but what does all this mean for governance beyond what we already know? about ongoing tightening, political repression and censorship by the party state over citizens. For the last few years, I've been working with a graduate student, Huang Jingyang, on the political economy of surveillance. Uh, we just published a piece in Studies and Comparative International Development on industrial upgrading in the security industry. And this research on surveillance has expanded into the actual implications of digital surveillance on governance in China and led to, I'm embarrassed to say, the birth of another term, platform authoritarianism. I know it's a little risky to talk about research in progress that isn't fully developed, but digital governance has spread so quickly and indeed accelerated during COVID to the point that it's already having a substantive impact on not only state society relations, but also intrastate relations. And I figured I'd take advantage of the fact that this is a critical issue seminar to um, try out some recent material as it were. Platform authoritarianism refers to digitally centralized governance based on monitoring platforms that collect surveillance images and other data from multiple sources and aggregate them into a massive display screen in a command center that enables local governments and various agencies to monitor spaces, citizens, businesses, and street level bureaucrats in real time. In the, the front end of these monitoring platforms involve various sensors and surveillance cameras. The cameras use the technologies of facial recognition, video structuring, AI algorithms, um, and other means to transform images, biological, physical, and chemical information to identify specific problems, such as exceeding pollu pollution control standards, traffic accidents, mass gatherings, and so forth. Identified problems take the form of an early warning to the monitoring system. And once a warning is issued, the command center can mobilize grassroots law enforcement staff to deal with violators. In urban areas, this technological innovation is helping to solve two types of information collection problems that have plagued coordination and policy implementation in China's political system. The first is the challenge of information asymmetry between hierarchical levels in vertical bureaucracies, which is endemic to principal agent problems. Lower level agencies or administrative employees 
have a tendency to conceal and distort information to defend their own discretion against supervisory pressure from higher levels. This is manifested in day-to-day operations as seen by selective implementation of policies at the grassroots level. The second information gathering problem is horizontal and it occurs among bureaucratic entities at the same level of administration. Local bureaucratic departments are often very territorial and reluctant to share information with the local government, which makes it difficult for the local government to coordinate among different bureaucracies to accomplish administrative goals. This is pretty much the classic Tiao Kwai problem that Lieberthal and Oxenberg described as fragmented authoritarianism. But the development of so-called smart cities that are connected to big data monitoring platforms is meant to help governments solve both vertical and horizontal types of information collection challenges in a traditionally fragmented system. As a result, there are two main types of monitoring platforms. The first type is an intra-departmental monitoring platform that's customized for vertical regulatory or enforcement agencies. And these are commercially known as domain platforms, and used in a variety of digital public sector projects, including smart public security, smart environmental protection, smart city management, smart uh, supervision, et cetera. Um, for those of you who aren't already up to speed on this, it took me a while to figure out that smart just means digital, digitally surveilled. <laughs> that's, that's what smart means, that's my translation at least. Uh, the second category of monitoring platforms developed for agencies are developed for agencies that really need interdepartmental coordination at the horizontal level, such as political and legal committees, uh, comprehensive governance offices, emergency management bureaus, and local authorities. Uh, quite at different administrative levels, like street, um, townships, district governments. And commercially, these are called integrated platforms or comprehensive brains, such as smart emergency management, smart comprehensive governance, and smart communities, also known as the Brightness Project or Shui Liang Gongsheng. How well do these platforms actually work? Well, as always, there's variation in practice. I'm, to make this more concrete, I'm going to talk about two examples of when the monitoring platform systems work, uh, followed by situations where they're really more for show and therefore have failed when they're the most needed. Xi Jinping has emphasized the importance of environmental governance in evaluating the performance of local cadres. And this has been backed up by central mandates that local governments meet very concrete targets to enhance environmental protection. During the heyday of export-oriented manufacturing before the global financial crisis, factories used to just dump their industrial waste into rivers. I mean, it was horrific. Uh, back then, the local environmental protection department um, either colluded with local factories and looked the other way or lacked the authority to do anything about that. All of that has changed dramatically. In one of our field sites in Southern China, let's just call it Factory City, uh, the local government has developed an extensive data collection and monitoring platform to track pollution emissions within its jurisdiction and to control the behavior of businesses and environmental protection department staff, EPD staff. Now the local EPD has unified all pollution related data into a digital platform that includes reporting on water quality from monitoring systems in all the townships air quality data, air pollution emissions, and sewage discharge data. With real-time data showing performance on pollution indicators specified by higher levels, there's a lot more pressure on cadres in the local environmental protection departments because 
everyone can see how other localities are doing at the same time. In Factory City, every month the townships that do poorly in environmental protection, um, they're notified and they're criticized. From the perspective of factory owners, there's less scope for bargaining with or paying off the EPD to dump their industrial waste. Now factories have to install expensive environmental monitoring equipment um, and they know their emissions and waste disposal, it's all being measured and reported to the EPD in real time. When sensors indicate that any pollution indicator has been exceeded or that an enterprise is engaging in illegal dumping, the system sounds a warning in the control center and sends a reminder to the person in charge of the area or, or to the enterprise itself. Since the environmental records of a company are now linked with their corporate social credit scores, enterprises in Factory City are now motivated to do better in environmental protection. So overall, the, the environmental monitoring platform has significantly enhanced state capacity to enforce pollution reduction targets since frontline bureaucrats can no longer strike private deals with factories and engage in selective enforcement. And now the Central Environmental Protection Bureau in Beijing, they have sensors installed in the very same location as the provincial level environmental protection departments and the lower level ones. So they, they all have their own sensors and they're all cross-checking the data and dealing to deal with this um, vertical TL information collection problem. The second example is about the use of horizontal level monitoring for social management in an urban neighborhood, also in the coastal South that has a lot of migrant workers and street vendors. In the past, um, a district leader that was interviewed, he said he had a really hard time maintaining social order in this area uh, because there were a lot of migrants, just a lot of people coming in from all over the place. But since 2015, the security camera footage from both public security, um, public surveillance outposts that are installed by the Public Security Bureau and privately installed cameras in residential buildings, that's all been integrated into a single monitoring platform for comprehensive social management. In practice, comprehensive social management means that managers in the control center can track the movements of people in the neighborhood throughout the day and see if there are any potential problems like crowds gathering, street fights, parking in non-designated areas, fire hazards, etc. The platform also collects information from grid patrol staff, the Wang um, Yuan, and other street level bureaucrats that carry devices with GPS positioning. In this digital, digitalized comprehensive social management system, the command center knows where all frontline staff are at any given point in time, and they can immediately dispatch them to locations in need of, lo in need of attention. This is also a significant change from the pre-platform days when district managers said they actually didn't know where their frontline staff were half the time or what they were actually doing. Interviews with frontline grid inspectors said that they feel a lot more pressure in their jobs now because they can never turn off their phones or venture beyond their particular area of spatial responsibility. At the same time, they also worry that they shouldn't stay still for too long, or it's going to look like they aren't walking the streets and making inspection rounds. While most observers of contemporary China um, have been focusing on citizens being subject to surveillance, our research on platform authoritarianism shows that the staff of the state are also being surveilled. 
frontline enforcement officers are always in a state of readiness because they might be mobilized through either human command or algorithmic deployment. This has not only reduced their autonomy in making judgment calls about how to handle particular incidents, but it's also given rise to what interviewees called the Uberization or of their work. They feel like gig workers or food delivery drivers who are under time pressure to respond to orders through an app, take photos to prove that they've completed the task and their managers know where they are and what they're doing all the time. Uh, E-government service systems and public security monitoring platforms also come, um, also come with a yellow and red warning system. Towards the end of a particular task, the staff member will get a yellow warning. And if he or she doesn't complete it on time, they'll get a red warning and be disciplined. All of this may sound dystopian and, and alienating. And from the perspective of some frontline staff, it, it is. But many agencies and local departments are installing smart platforms just to keep up with the times. Um, after Xi Jinping praised the city brain, the Chengshi Daonel platform that Alibaba designed for Hangzhou in, in March, 2020. Well, that's, that's when Xi Jinping visited. Um, after that, many tech companies started citing Chairman Xi to encourage local government agencies to procure their surveillance platform systems. So it turns out that installing state-of-the-art control centers looks really good for showing to higher level officials when they're visiting their offices, but many managers don't actually know how to make full use of the monitoring platforms due to their sophisticated technology. This resonates with what Isa Ding has called performative governance, meaning uh, to quote her, the theatrical deployment of language, symbols, and gestures to foster an impression of good governance. Except in this case, it's ornamental deployment of fancy monitoring platforms. The more expensive, the better. For example, leaders in one neighborhood said that on a regular basis, they only use their fancy monitoring platform to deal with parking problems and minor car accidents rather than using it for comprehensive social management. Sometimes these performative platforms can be activated when a city or agency is suddenly subject to inspections from above, so they have to figure out how to make it work, um, or when their citizen complains so that they could look into the system to try to troubleshoot what went, what's happening, or when other problems are brought to their attention. But ultimately, the effectiveness of these high-tech monitoring platforms relies on the administrative capacity of the people that are actually working with them. Uh, a tragic illustration of this point was in July, when over 300 people died during extreme flooding in Zhengzhou before the record-breaking heavy rainfall. Um, Zhengzhou's meteorological service had actually issued a series of emergency alerts. These red alerts should have triggered the closing of all but essential businesses and closing of schools, but the city never issued a weather lockdown order and su subways continued to operate even after the flooding had already started. This is really hard to explain, given that eight months earlier, Chengzhou had installed a real-time flood prevention system as one of its high-profile, highly advertised smart city projects. And you know, after this devastating flooding, social media posts on Weibo complained about Zhengzhou's smart city projects as being a waste of money and, and completely useless. In summary, our edited volume shows why it's important to distinguish between authoritarianism and governance. 
authoritarianism entails a zero-sum trade-off in political power between state and societal actors. By contrast, governance can be a positive-sum situation when it comes to society interactions. And attending to the quality of governance enhances regime legitimacy. The central government is certainly aware of this, and building smart cities is intended to improve governance. Earlier in the talk, I categorized the authoritarianism with adjectives literature into three main types of governance issues that the terms address. Information flows between state and society, mechanisms for holding local officials accountable, and regime responses to information re received. Well, platform authoritarianism speaks to all three of these issues. In terms of platform monitoring systems, on, um, in terms of the impact of platform monitoring systems on governance, when, when the platform function as intended by the party state, they are more responsive, but with less operational autonomy and less scope for state society negotiation. The space for creative ambiguity and local innovation in governance that we saw during the pre-Xi era has been circumscribed by algorithms and constant surveillance. But going forward, I think a, a lot more research is needed on the impact of all of this on street level staff. These are the people that are supposed to be implementing the orders and then also societal strategies in the digital age. And this really, this really requires field work. This requires talking to real people informally. Um, and it's unfortunate that field work is much more difficult these days, and yet it's more essential than ever for understanding ground level dynamics from all stakeholders. Um, a number of the things that I've discussed today, they came from field work. You, you wouldn't be able to find this out through, through other means as directly. I'd like to leave plenty of time to respond to your questions. Uh, thank you for giving me the, the chance to share some published research as well as fresh and evolving research. I look forward to chatting with you. Thank you. Kelly, thanks so much for uh, uh, a fascinating, if uh, frankly, somewhat alarming uh, presentation. Um, let me, uh, first of all, <clears throat> just invite members of the audience to uh, submit their questions in the Q&A function, either anonymously or uh, uh, you can identify yourself. Uh, while we're, we're waiting for uh, uh, questions to come in, uh, let me segue from Kelly's very last point uh, about the importance of fieldwork and the challenges of fieldwork to plug a, uh, uh, an upcoming Fairbanks Center event, uh, uh, an interdisciplinary conversation uh, bringing together political scientists, uh, historians, and anthropologists to talk about strategies for dealing with the changing research environment in China both uh, uh, as a result of COVID, but uh, in, the longer, in the longer term as well. Uh, this session will run on November 1st. Um, I will, if I get a moment's break, I'll post the information uh, to participant, to, to audience members, um, but uh, it's aimed primarily at uh, graduate students and early career scholars, but we think it should be a very valuable, productive set of information, uh, opportunity to share information uh, for all of us who think that field work is crucial. Um, all right, so that plug said, let me um, uh, make two quick comments and then, and then pose a question. Um, the, the, the section on platform, well, first of all, I've actually been, been, been in the market for an electric vehicle 
And so I was actually looking at the smart car. And so learning, Kelly, from you what, what the smart actually means uh, is giving me pause. I might, I might, I might, I might look at a bolt instead. Um, the, the, uh, I can't say that I felt, so the, the section, your discussion of, of platform authoritarianism was fascinating. Um, I guess that what hears in the media, lots of sort of disparate elements of this, um, but to, to see it all put together and, and to see how it fits into a governance strategy is, uh, as you say, it is, it is dystopian and a little bit terrifying and frankly, not that reassuring that officials don't know how to use it well. Uh, I, I know that was what you were trying to persuade us, but I'm a little unpersuaded. Anyways, on to, on to, my, on to my question. Um, one of the things, so I want to go back. I'm more interested in society than the state. Um, and I, I was very struck by your earlier slide about the different patterns of strategies within different domains. Um, one of the things that, that really struck me from that discussion um, was that there are clearly very uh, effective communications within domains about what are the strategies that are more effective, what are the strategies that are less effective. To give you just one, one example from my own experience, it's extraordinary to meet uh, 90-year-old uh, semi-literate temple, temple keepers who want to talk about the criteria for UNESCO recognition for intangible cultural heritage, right? And the reason is because they know that that's a strategy that is potentially effective in, in, in dealing with the state. But it strikes me that there seems to be, and your, gra your chart actually I think shows this, there is not effective communication across domains. About about what works and what and what doesn't work. So, two a two part question. First of all, can you can you explain uh, why that is? But secondly, would it would it not be actually advantageous for the state to share that to to find ways to see that that information is shared in the sense that local officials and higher level officials must surely want to see social behavior that inspires soft responses rather than hard responses. And, and if, if an awareness in different domains of what would generate a soft rather than a hard response um, is more widely shared, that would actually serve the interests both of social activists and of state officials. So I wonder if you could just comment on, I mean, to me, I've presented it as if it were a no brainer. But obviously, it's not. So, so what are the what are the issues in Chinese society and in the Chinese state that are impeding that learning between domains? Absent, of course, how the situation is changing in the new smart era. Uh, sorry, and let me just let me just while Kelly is answering my long and convoluted question, which was actually long and convoluted for a reason. Uh, please enter your questions in the in the Q and A. Thanks. Wow, that's, um, it's a great question. It's complicated to answer, but I'm gonna try anyway. <laughs> There's been longstanding um, difficulties in horizontal um, mobilization within China across, across regions. So while in certain sectors, um, and I, I could see how in folk religion or traditional religion or, with, or even like, you know, among Christians 
or among workers in a particular factory, they might be able to share information. Um, but horizontal exchange of information has traditionally been discouraged through various means. I mean, originally it was more through limits on population mobility. In the digital age, there is censorship when there are efforts to organize and maybe share too much information. And so I think it's really the challenge of knowing what in the, it takes, it's a, it takes a judgment call and, and it's being done algorithmically and not just by humans to decide what kind of information is constructive and could inspire these softer strategies so that it's a win-win situation versus sharing information that the regime doesn't wants to deny and does not want to give any air to at all. So I think the challenges are, are endemic to the system of, of censorship. Um, without censorship, then you could, that there would be freer flows of information, but there's so many, there's so many red lines and there's so much sensitivity that um, they, I think they, the decision is that it's safer not to share information than risk groups gathering. And what any time a group gathers, yeah, they could just be talking peacefully, or it could just be a seminar, it could be a birthday party, but <laughs> then there's always potential for it escalating. Um, and there is just a far less tolerance for, for that level of risk right now. I mean, the, the party state is really in risk management mode. Um, Big time. So that's about <laughs> as straightforward an answer as I can think of at the moment. Oh, I see Bill. Bill, thanks so much for joining. And it's, it's, uh, I'm such a fan of your work. It's an honor that you're here with us. I see your hand up. I don't know if the rest of the audience can see your hand up. Should I take that question, Mike? I was, I was actually, I was actually going to say, let's, let's go to Bill next. So Bill, uh, floor is yours. Thanks Kelly for that, for that answer. Um, am I the inventor of insecure authoritarianism? Oh no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for a marvelously insightful talk. Uh, one of the key innovations in the Xi Jinping era is is giving the party secretaries in in private and businesses in general, but especially private businesses. Uh, a key role in, in at least vetoing uh, uh, strategic business decisions. And I'm wondering how that's working. Uh, I'm told that in Beijing and a lot of the big companies, uh, the agenda of the party secretary and the agenda of the CEO uh, tend to be very different. And, and uh, talking with business people, they are, they, they believe there's a severe decline in efficiency. I can imagine that in other areas and in certain sectors that the party secretary would essentially be co-opted by the CEO. That's what traditionally happened in the businesses I, I visited in Guangdong. I wonder if you have an impression of overall patterns or or the way that variations occur? That's a great question too. And I must, um, unfortunately, it's been a while since I had a chance to do my own field work and interview, you know, businesses 
to get a better um, grip on this. The last time I had a chance to speak with many enterprises, uh, I, I noticed a similar kind of regional difference, you know, coastal South, Guangdong, Zhejiang, it's the party secretaries tend to feel like they're more co-opted, they're aligned, not, not as much divergence. Whereas in Beijing, you know, maybe because the party secretaries are uh, appointed <laughs> in a more autonomous way, but that's anecdotal and, it, and this is dated. So I don't, I don't actually have any fresh insight into this issue right now. Thanks. All right. Well, now the now the questions are pouring in, Kelly. Uh, we we have uh, we have uh, left, or you have left uh, about uh, twenty five minutes for conversation, which is terrific. Um, I will try to organize them a little bit. But why don't we start with a question from Tom Remington? Uh, we know that issues differ by political sensitivity according to the line that is set by leaders at a given time. How does the relative political sensitivity of an issue affect the degree to which there is broader engagement? By bureaucratic and popular interests in the policymaking process. Thank you, Tom, for that that question. We we were colleagues for a year at Emory when I first started my career, so it's it's uh, lovely to it's lovely to hear from him. Yeah, in um, when we were when our authors were doing the case studies and when we were going through the the lit review, the quantitative case analysis review, there's definitely I I think it's precisely because the political sensitivity of certain issues changes over time, that you can see that while the window may be completely closed for an issue at one point um, and is, is super sensitive, later on, there's, there's an opening. I mean, you look at um, the crackdown on feminists, for example, uh, you know, that suddenly the, the term was banned, um, but, there was still the passage of the domestic violence law. So I think during, during highly sensitive times, that's, that's, that's not the time to be pursuing soft or hard strategies from, from a societal perspective. It just, you know, laying, laying really low because otherwise if it's politically sensitive, you know, it's a red line and that's um, <laughs> there, people are charged with removing those sensitivities basically. Um, I, it's kind of that straightforward in terms of the fact that we are operating in an authoritarian setting here. So whether, whether the window will open again, I mean, I think, you know, we know when major events are coming up like Congresses, or if there's just been, um, you know, a devastating natural disaster or pandemic, or, um, you can see also by the pattern of arrests, the types of people that are being detained, what's considered sensitive. Those are all, those are all signals um, that activity in those particular sectors are not going to be, you know, the, the regime isn't gonna be super responsive, let's put it that way, to those issues. Um, so clearly people are paying attention because we've got a whole series of questions asking about you, asking you to kind of parse the variation in various elements of the things you've described. So maybe I wonder if it makes sense to ask them all together or if that'll just be confusing. Maybe I'll ask them in a kind of logical sequence. Um, so let's start. So three questions on variation, which, which you can answer. Do you want me to ask them all at once and then you can answer them one by one? Sure, yeah, okay, yeah. so so my colleague Nara Dillon 
uh, at rights. The concept of platform authoritarianism is very interesting as, as, as well as the information overload you describe at the local level. Is there variation across these platforms in how much overload they produce? So that's a, a question about variation in, in, in information overload. Um, we've got two anonymous questions. Um, some local governments do a better job at using digital platform for ad to address challenges. Some others use it for more superficial purposes. Do you see any factors that explain why some local governments are more efficient than others? So that's a question about variation in usage of the platform. And then a third anonymous question uh, asks, uh, would President Tsai elaborate on the factors contributing to the sectoral variation in outcomes? So, so three different approaches to the question of variation. Why don't you take them uh, together or separately as you wish? Okay, sure. I'll go in the order in which you, you read them. Um, in terms of variation among platforms in information overload. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Every agency has a platform now. I mean, it's not just the Public Security Bureau, it's the Environmental Protection Bureau, it's um, traffic, it's the health department, um, education, I mean, you name it. it every done way pretty practically has one, um, the, the, the major ones that you can think of. And I think we need to do a lot more research on it because the ones that we've looked at so far have focused on, um, because I have a separate project on um, air pollution in the greater bay area so that's that's what brought us to look at the environment protection departments um, and the environmental uh, monitoring platforms there and that and so we're, we're very aware of that but uh we haven't looked at and then health uh, well during the pandemic we're aware of those um that seems to be pretty well coordinated within the provinces but uh there's there's actually competition between the makers of these apps. So, you know, the, the Alibaba, the one done by Alibaba Health Code, um, it doesn't, their health certificate um, doesn't compute with the one done by Tencent, for example. But let me, let me see if I can try to um, schematically speculate, really. Um, the Public Security Bureau, of course, that's where we started our work and their surveillance um, they struggled for years with lack of integration, um, even like within a particular province or it, they had so many different systems at different levels. And now they're finally starting to get more integrated um, they're, they're called systems integrators. So the Public Security Bureau, I would say is probably the most advanced. They've been using surveillance the longest. Um, they started the initiative decades ago and they're, they're certainly the most sophisticated in managing their, their information. But I would say probably the, the newcomers, um, the Environmental Protection Department seems to be doing pretty well too, because they've been in power. They used to be a much weaker bureaucracy and now they're a priority. Um, so it would be bureaus that, you know, you know where I haven't done um, research in a long time is rural China actually. So most of these monitoring platforms are in urban areas that they're, they're smart cities. Now, rural areas also have smart cities, but I'm, I'm gonna 
wager that just based on my previous field work experience that counties that have these, you know, gorgeous marble county seats and now platforms, like maybe some, some of the staff there are uh, possibly less um, technologically sophisticated because you need, you need training to know what to look for and how to operate it and how to maintain it. And a lot of times, um, you know, speaking with the vendors, the people who actually manufacture and produce this, this stuff, um, they are, they're trying to create new markets. They're going, they're, they're going on a roadshow, shopping these things around to local agencies and departments saying, you really need this and let me show you why. And these local officials, countries, they don't, they don't know, they don't really know. <laughs> they're like, yeah, that looks pretty good. You mean we really need this? They're like, yeah, we just sold one to the county next door. You don't want to be the county without it. And so they're kind of taken <laughs> for flight by these tech firms. And, and they're very persuasive because they, these tech firms, they have um, an informational advantage over, <laughs> over the local departments. Uh, but this is, I mean, this is just screaming out for more research um, to answer the questions of variation in, in platform usage and effectiveness. But we mainly know about public security and, um, and, the, and the environmental protection department and a bit about health, but not, not the other areas so much. So graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> um, the next question concerns local variation in the use of platforms. Okay, so I, I touched upon that a little bit. And well, Hangzhou, of course, was the first city brain um, with Alibaba's uh, design. So, and Zhejiang has always been a bit more advanced in all of this. So you're going to see some, um, so Alibaba, uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, I think first tier cities, they're going to be using it more, but then you've got, you know, Zhengzhou had these two smart city projects, uh, spent a lot of money on them and they, they weren't fully functional. So um, again, I think that's, that's worth researching. Is there a difference between, you know, second and third tier cities? Um, is there an issue with, the use of um, different types of firms like Alibaba versus Tencent type products. I, I, I'm answering the question by suggesting research areas basically. Uh, and then, but the sectoral, the last question about sectoral variation and outcomes that I think I can talk to a little bit more at least based on, based on pre-existing research. So what we found more than anything else was when it, when it, when we're dealing with like community fairs, urban homeowners, um, middle-class complaints, like not in my backyard incineration plants or legalizing legislative assemblies, like over time, they're, they're persistent, they're well-educated, they're well-networked, they're confident, you know, highly literate, they're middle to upper middle class. Like they, they find they're better able, and this is not like a real, you know, surprising finding. There's a class element to it. But then workers, labor disputes. Um, they, uh, earlier on in the, during the early stages of privatization, when workers went on the streets, if they were in a wealthy area like Shanghai, they could be bought out. But generally speaking, the workers, workers' demands are not being well, um, those are more intractable. Those are, those are much more difficult to manage. And mm -hmm. 
when we come to um, rural land grabs, that is super sensitive. And, and so the rights activists there, as we all know, have not fared well, um, have been imprisoned. There's a crackdown on them. Religion, there's variation. I, um, as Mike, Mike mentioned earlier, intangible cultural heritage is the way to save your faith or your beliefs and your practices, your rituals, your traditions. Um, that's just, that's the way to get like UN seal of approval, UNESCO seal of approval. It's a brilliant strategy, strategy um, because then how can you contest that? But, you know, Muslims, Christians, and not, you know, that those are more sensitive religions right now. Um, the scope for NGOs operating, you know, like more autonomous NGOs or even some government operated NGOs, that space has shrunk dramatically, quite frankly, and certainly for foreign NGOs as well. So I think even in, in some of the areas where there's been some, some progress, um, it's, it's, it's much more challenging. But, uh, you know, I just want to give one example of sometimes when an issue is, it's all about reframing, right? Like with Matsu, they reframed it from being a superstitious belief to being intangible cultural heritage. What a brilliant move. And then I think with HIV AIDS education, at one point they reframed it in terms of um, public health, reproductive health, rather than, uh, than its association with homosexuality, right? And so then it seemed... So reframing can can still be effective, but with with things like labor and rights, um, certain type there, it's challenging to think of the way to reframe it where it's not really obvious who the what the intended outcome is. Um, one can only be so creative, but there's there's still a lot of creativity out there. I must say, I mean, as <laughs> dystopian and Orwellian as all of this is I still hear on a very regular basis, clever ways to continue communicating online, um, you know, references to, to, to important people that are, are well disguised and, and going on. <laughs> the, uh, there was of course an attempt to reframe labor rights uh, and workers' rights in terms of Marxism some years ago. And that was not, that was not such a success. That did not work out well for, for anyone. Um, Oh wait! Let's turn prosperity. You're, you've got to talk. That that may be the that may be the that may be the key. Oh, let me let me actually just say one of. I mean, I say my current field work site, but of course I haven't been there in a year and a half, and I don't know when I'll, when I'll next get there. But uh, one of my current field work sites is a county with smart villages, and and I've spent quite a bit of time there. I haven't seen anything smart about the villages. Uh, I'm sure they have the command center. But anyways, um, let's turn to uh, a question from Tom Bruce, a PhD student at University of Toronto, uh, my alma mater. Uh, do you have any sense for how popular some of these monitoring effects, particularly how you describe workers as feeling Uberized, are with small to large private companies and with even with SEOs? I'm trying to look at the question because I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand how how popular these monitoring so i think i think i think the question is what's the, well, the what's the the frequency of usage yeah okay yeah uh okay so that sounds like more among among businesses so these days um consumer facing businesses they pretty much all have apps and electronic payment systems and, and delivery. I mean, that 
um, that trend accelerated during COVID to get the products to people and certainly Taobao revolutionized all of that. And, and given Taobao, Alibaba's um, dominance in the area, they've really led in that particular, that particular culture. And so you, if you think about the supply chain, right? I mean, at the front, at the, they're the producers, they're the marketers, they're the distributors, and then they're the people who actually like deliver. So the people who deliver, they have it the worst, the Meituan drivers. I mean, that's, that's the equivalent to the sense of Uberization, the people on the, um, the motorcycles and, you know, just going you know, 10 hour shifts and things like that. Um, and that's, that's the most alienating and, and kind of difficult. But what's, what's interesting is that, um, oh, and then uh, workers in SOEs, um, yeah, I mean, there's facial recognition, though with masks, that's, a, that's, a, that's harder. There, there's, right now, there's actually quite a variety of different types of apps that are out there to monitor workplace performance. So in the US, I guess we have Slack. Um, just yesterday, someone from University of Wisconsin's Department of Communications, Tom Shu, talked about DingTalk um, and how DingTalk is used by companies to you know, monitor, like constantly uh, send you messages. Um, you have to, you know, smile on your way in, take a picture of yourself when you check in. And it's just like, there's no release from that. And so it's, it's tech, tech workers are very much monitored as well. And one thing that came up in our conversation with him is certainly, the, you know, there are different types of labor. There's the type of labor that's very repetitive, perhaps um, mindless, Fordist, Taylorist, um, the delivery, those repetitive tasks. I mean, that's, that's just a grind. Uh, but then people who work in more creative industries, more intellectual work, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily monitored as much. Um, so there's this whole 996 culture too. And so there's some kind of uh, social pressure, professional pressure associated with that. But I wanted to use this, this, your question too, to point to, uh-oh, it just disappeared. Where did it go? Sorry, I'm sorry. I just clicked that it was answered. Um, yeah, I think, I think I wanted to mention too that on the, um, on the public service side of things, um, that there's, right now there, there are many different apps and they aren't fully integrated yet. And, and so it'll be interesting to see, to follow that particular industry. Um, because right now the government apps are basically modeled over after the commercial apps, the ones used by Alibaba. So it's led to a commercial culture in the delivery of public services. So you might order a bunch of toys for your kid. That same business model has been transplanted into governmental responsiveness to let's say, you know, reporting on someone who parked in your parking spot or, you know, dumped their garbage in the wrong location. That's, that's what the only other comment I wanted to make. Okay, thank you. Uh, that, it's happening in universities too, but that's another story. Um, that transformation of the, of the, of the business model. Um, so we've got a bunch of questions outstanding and only about five minutes left. I think, I feel like several of the questions have actually, you've answered in the course of, of answering other questions. So if you don't mind, I think we should end with uh, a, a question that gestures back to history, which is Pat Giersch's question at the very bottom. Um, what, what might this platform authoritarianism research reveal about changes in or continuities in party state assumptions about cadre discipline and devotion? 
If decentralization or local autonomy was greater at certain periods in the past, does the smart approach to monitoring activity reveal that we are in a period of decreased confidence in Beijing's ability to maintain cadre discipline? Or is the greater monitoring that we've heard about in your presentation simply a reflection of increased capacity through leveraging technology? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, principal agent problems, um, cadre discipline have been endemic. Started during the revolution, during the early years, there's always been a gap <laughs> between, um, you know, what the grassroots cadres are doing and what higher levels are because there are, you know, the incentives aren't always aligned. And, and so I do think that there's a fair amount of distrust of the staff at the state. Um, and this is seen in kind of ongoing corruption investigations. And it's, you know, it's tricky because so much of China's growth and so much uh, was, was facilitated precisely by them bending the rules and looking the other way. Um, and now the scope for that is, is so severely circumscribed that local cadres are nervous about being creative or, or looking the other way. I mean, it used to be that you know, the Chungguan, the you know, street level staff, they might let go to who set these sidewalk vendors set up when there's, you know, it's like a weekend, no one's around, why not let them sell a few vegetables or peddle some wares. And now they know they can't do that because there's a CCTV camera there right now. And 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 the go who the vendors themselves, they understand too. It's not, you know, there's just, um, so that's that's really, I think in, in some senses, unfortunate, probably, cut down on corruption pretty significantly as well. So I think it's not just technology. I think, it, you know, there's, of course, it's a confluence of the arrival of technology um, during a climate of, of distrust um, and trying to clean up the party. I mean, it's a, that's a real uh, a theme that's come back. Great, well, we have a couple more questions, but we are, we are at time and it is the middle of the night for you. So I think we will we'll, we'll, we'll stop things there, if that's all right. I see Kelly, a true, a true presenter, is looking through the questions, looking for a last one to answer. Um, no, 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 you're welcome. Okay. I just you're, wanted to, yeah, yeah, I'm just curious. I, I, could screen, I could screenshot. Uh, yeah, and we can, I think we can send those to you. Um, so thank you, um, uh, everyone, for attending. Um, uh, a reminder that we will return to critical issues at the normal time of 1230 uh, next week. Uh, but a special thank you to uh, Professor Tsai from HKOST for a, a, a truly um, stimulating and, and informative presentation about something that I think we all, um, we all encounter in kind of sporadic ways in our experiences in China and our dealings with, with our Chinese friends and colleagues, but um, is actually part of a much broader story that I think you you laid out really nicely for us today. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to share your, your most recent and your upcoming research with us. Thanks, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's made me think and a lot more research is to be done. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, thank you all. Be safe and healthy, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Kelly.